0: Hey guys, welcome to the Improvement Podcast, where the mission is to help young men develop their character, identity, and mindset in order to activate their potential and achieve their goals in life. On today's episode, we have another special guest. His name is Donald James. He is a retired NASA executive, as well as an author. Welcome to the show, Donald. Thank you very much, Kamani. I'm so excited to be here today with you. Yeah, I'm definitely excited too, just based on what I read from your book. I think that you have a lot of value you can offer to the audience today, and I'm really looking forward to hopping into this conversation. And so, Thanks a
1: lot. Yeah, cool.
0: Yeah, definitely. And so just to uh, give the listeners a little bit more information about you, could you tell them a little bit about your background?
1: Uh, yeah, so I live in Northern California, and when I went to uh, – graduate school, I was trying to figure out what was next for me, and I got fortunate and ended up uh, getting hired by NASA, the space agency. Uh, That wasn't my first choice, but uh, how I went from that to actually staying with NASA is kind of an interesting story that we can talk about, but um, there was a point in my early NASA career where I really had an epiphany about how amazing the space agency was in terms of inspiring young people, uh, particularly people who might have an interest in working for the space program. And so I made a decision that I was going to make a career at NASA, and I stayed for 35 years uh, uh, up until my last job, which was as associate administrator for education in the Obama administration. And so I'm very proud of uh, of my tenure at NASA and um, I'm passionate about supporting uh, young people on their journey wherever they are. And so that's what most of my work is now. I've been retired for four years and uh, the book that I wrote was one of the things that I wanted to contribute. And I also speak to any groups that are interested. And um, uh, just trying to, to do what I can to give back because I was so blessed to have so many people help me along the way and to guide me and coach me. And so I feel very duty-bound in an honorable way to, to do my part. So, so yeah, so that's uh, that's me.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that the people that you talk to definitely appreciate you doing your part, like you said, And contributing to others, trying to find ways to take your experiences and help other people to develop themselves. And so you also talked about mentorship and coaching and such. And I think something that's kind of related to that is the role that your parents played in your life, more specifically your mom. And so could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So um, my mother was reared in Atlanta, Georgia and went to school at a black college, Spelman University. And and then studied French at Middlebury College in Vermont, which is where she met my father. And they ended that i getting married. And my father went on to law school in Connecticut, and they moved to California to set up his practice, which is where I was born. And my mom uh, wanted to teach school, and she taught English and French. And one of the earliest memories I have of my mother, which... Um, influence my thinking about people and the whole concept of manners and how you treat people is my mother taught at a uh, inner city school in Sacramento, which is where uh, I lived. And many of the students, this was during uh, the Vietnam War, and we had many immigrants from Southeast Asia, And I remember my mom would always insist on wanting to know how to pronounce her students' names properly. Because what would happen a lot of times is that students would Americanize their name because they they didn't want their American peers to struggle with how they were really, what their names really were and how they were pronounced. And so they would you know call themselves Susan or Eric or whatever and my mom would say I want to know what your mother and your father called you when you were born and she would practice their names till she got it right and she remembered many of her students Uh, interestingly enough at my mother's memorial service in 2017 after she died some of her former students came back and they talked about how that made a huge difference to her because it was a sign of respect that she had for her students um my mother as a teacher uh, never raised her voice and she was always very available for her students and um and so she was really dedicated to uh, education uh particularly for those disadvantaged people that uh, didn't have the same opportunities as other people did so she was a big influence uh, for us and um you know and she insisted that if we got a gift, we would hand write a thank you note to the people who gifted us. And so that just became a part of what my brother and I did uh, always. And, um, you know, that's another sign of respect for people is that you're willing to sit down and take the time and handwrite write a note and address an envelope stamp it and put it in the mail you know um of course at the time when i was growing up there was no internet i'm 64 years old so i'm dating myself but we didn't there was actually a time when there was no internet and no email i remember what about right <laughs> it is super crazy i can't imagine the world without that you know it's like imagining what was the world like before there was a garage door open, you know. so but but wow, yeah, I, I, um, you know, then with the advent of the internet, wow, texting, man, that was so easy. You can just send a quick note to somebody, and and there's a place for that. But when you really want to express gratitude to somebody for something they've done to you, you know, as a way of showing, you know, your your appreciation, you know, my mother's lessons, I really stuck with me, and so to this day, I still, I still do that. So my mom was a very interesting woman um uh, she she after she retired you know she had her friends she was very big in the Delta Sigma Theta sorority and was very much a part of uh scholarships for students and things like that something my brother and I continue to support so um yeah she you know pretty much she reared us by herself my parents divorced when i was 7 years old and although I saw my dad and my dad was in my life and there was no, you know, animus between us, um, the fact is he wasn't around on a day-to-day basis. Uh, there was a time when my my grandmother moved to live with us from Atlanta, Georgia, and she became the de facto spouse in the house, you know, doing a lot of the cooking and driving until we could drive ourselves. Uh, but my mom pretty much was doing it herself. And so when I think about you know how she had to take care of us and um and you know do her job and she never remarried and i remember she told one of my teachers that she just couldn't imagine giving her time to some other man when she had two young black men that she's trying to rear and keep alive and so she made a lot of sacrifices for us so i think that's the other thing that stands out to me about who my mother was was somebody who was who made a who made a lot of sacrifices for her two sons. Um, and um, and so I, I will always be grateful to her and the gifts that she has given us.
0: Right. And so just from what I had read, it seems like she had a, I guess, a, a monumental impact on your life. You know, just based on the fact that a lot of what you wrote about in the book was inspired by her. This uh, definitely seems like she was a a wonderful woman just from what I've read. And then also that story that you talked about with those, um, with those Asian students, because I'm sure that that meant a lot to them. I have friends who did the same thing where they just went by an English name because, uh, I guess they, it got to the point to where for some people it was too difficult for them to learn the real name or they just didn't care enough to give them that respect. So that definitely says a lot about her character that, uh, she was willing to, to take that step to do that, to offer them that respect. And so yeah, it's great that, you know, even though that you ended up growing up in a single parent household, that you had a mom that was so well-rounded and developed in those areas to where she could, you know, even though she had to do it alone, was able to make you into a well-rounded person and teach you those important things.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think the things she taught us, she saw, she had a vision that, these were the things that were really going to matter. And of course, when I was younger, I couldn't appreciate that. Um, even even the things she did to make sure my uh, brother and I were surrounded by, um, you know, pillars of our black community in Sacramento. Um, and, and in fact, it's kind of funny when I think about it, because when I was growing up, I thought, I thought all black kids had doctors and lawyers and dentists in their lives. I thought that was normal. I didn't realize that wasn't normal until I got older and realized that I was really privileged. And I do feel privileged, not in the same kind of privilege as, you know, perhaps my caucasian brothers and sisters enjoy, but privileged in the sense that that I got to see, I got to have role models. That were all professionals. That were all in, and most of them were in, you know, good marriages. And of course, I was friends with their kids. That was sort of the common bond. But they—they they were all upstanding people. You know, they—they they were, you know, professionals of all walks of life. And I, I just assumed that was—that was how it was for for all kids. And I—it wasn't until much later that I realized that wasn't the case. So, I kind of. Leverage that, you know when I wrote in the book about the importance of having people in your life that you can cultivate to be in your life to support you and and I talk about i you know ways of doing that and And I know a lot of people may not think that they have people, but I think there's strategies you can do to to acquire that. But I think that's vitally important. I don't do anything on my own. Even writing this book, it was a huge team effort and I had many people to help me. And, you know, one of the most courageous things I think anybody could say if they're on a path of growth is, I need help. I don't know how to do something i'm you know nowadays we typically will joke well there's an app for that whatever the problem is well for most of my life there were no apps so you had to you know the app is uh support a support system and if there's something somebody that's not in your direct circles then you need to find people who know people and figure out how to get to them and I know very few people if you just reach out to them and say hey I need some help I'm not sure what to do would just turn them down and somebody may for example come to you Kamani and ask you for some support about something and you may not have an answer no but you might know somebody who might know somebody and if that person is Tenacious enough to track it down, you know they'll be able to create somebody. So I got that from from my mom. Now it, it 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 was different back in the '60s and '70s because when my parents first moved to California, like many black families, they you know migrated around the black community. That's just I mean it wasn't legal segregation but it was sort of vestiges from southern segregation where you were just used to being around people that you're used to being around
0: it makes sense and, mm-hmm. yeah
1: so so for me the fact that you know we went although i went to a very integrated church you know my mom you know rather wanted us to go to a church that was in our neighborhood rather than quote unquote the black baptist church which was a little further away most of our social circles were You know, middle class black professional people that you know we saw at Christmas time, or had dinner with, or whatever it is, the kids play together and stuff like that. So that's where I saw the value, um, uh, because I that's who I wanted to aspire to be, is to be like those professionals. Well,
0: that's great that she put you in a position to have those type of people in your circles where you could see those positive influences. And uh, absolutely. And I can, I'm sure that that probably had a big effect on your trajectory in life right
1: absolutely um i remember very clearly talking to some of these men about you know everything from my choice of colleges uh to go to because at the time i didn't know better to do a lot of my own homework and analysis and the kinds of things that i would advise young people to do now i mean if a person that i highly respected say hey that's a school you ought to think about going to i mean that's that's what I considered and did. Um, and um, I had one man that I write about in the book who was a very dear friend of mine and a mentor. Um, and I, I would spend a lot of time with him. And so I would just learn things by watching how he operated. He was, he was a senior person, a civilian in the military, and he was one of the few black people at the base where he worked, and so I would hear about how he'd have to navigate his way through the, the thickets of, you know, the, the hierarchy of the military. Even though the military was very well integrated, and I think the military in many ways are, as an institution, much further uh, advanced in terms of integration than other institutions, you know, there still were a lot of challenges particularly for black people and so so i learned a lot from him just by being around him some it's not like he would call me up and says okay i'm going to give you your lesson for today that's not how it worked you know i would it just it was just through osmosis by you know while we're playing tennis or i'm following him on the golf course or you know we're driving someplace and you know he's talking about stuff so so yeah I, i i was very blessed to have this and um I I attribute a lot of what I was able to accomplish to having those kinds of
0: influences. And one thing that kind of sticks out to me, too, is that, um, you know, with your mom's approach to everything, it doesn't seem like she had an approach to where she felt like she had to do it all or that, you know, even put that pressure on herself to do it all. But um, she was more than willing to put you around other people, I guess, specifically these these male role models that you're talking about to help you get development from them. And so that's something that I definitely respect. And so I guess the next thing that kind of pops into my head is for those people that, um, that are listening to this, you know, now all of us come from ideal backgrounds. And so, you know, myself included. And so one thing I'll say is that from coming from a background that wasn't ideal, there were some things that I had to relearn if that makes sense, because what I learned from the environment that I came from wasn't something that could lead to, Living a productive life, and so would you say that uh, would you say something kind of similar to that
1: yeah I in fact, if I have any regrets about what I wrote in the book and I don't think I emphasize this enough and it it probably is not going to come as a surprise to anyone, but the world as we have it is just not fair we're not on the same we're not equal, you know, different people. Um, and, and I, so, so for example, in order for me to appreciate what it's like for somebody who is, let's say really destitute or, and has nothing and comes from, you know, a horrible environment, that's like, you know, someone saying to me, well, I think you ought to aspire to be like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Like, and I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to be a multi, multi, multi-billionaire? That is just so outside of my reality, I can't imagine it. So similar, somebody who is, you know, really uh, comes from a challenging environment, you know, for me to have the audacity to say, well... You know, if you just do what I do, you know, you can make it too. Is is really disrespectful because there's there's um, I, there's a lot that you know I just don't know. In fact, you know, you probably read about my the, the Mama's rules that I write about in the book, and one of them that that I think is really you know important is. Um, when she rule number 4 where she says don't compare your life to others and don't judge others you have no idea what their journey is about and i can't tell you how many times i've caught myself in some kind of judgment about people and their condition and realize i have no idea what their journey is about i don't know what their home life was i didn't experience as they experience all of that um what I would like to believe is that no matter where you are in your journey is first of all to make the decision that you're going to be on a journey of improvement. I believe anybody can do unless you have, you know, severe mental problems or addiction issues that are that are beyond, I mean you need help in order to get past all that. And I don't I don't understand that I didn't have addictive behaviors the way, you know, that some people do. Um, nor did i have that in my family right you know my parents didn't have addictive issues Um, but i do believe that you can start by saying i am going to be on a journey of improvement and and i don't know what to do and so from there you kind of open up a channel to receive support and insight from people so if you're starting from five floors below where i started right you know i i started and i had most things i needed and wanted i mean my parents weren't wealthy but you know they made a living and and we did well um i think the the idea that you can you know cultivate relationships with people who can help you and turn you on to things that can be supportive I think you can take the journey to where you want to be. Now, your journey may be a lot harder and a lot longer than my journey was, right? Yeah. And let me let me just give you a deeply personal example of what I mean by that. I am proud of the fact that, you know, I went from where I went when I first started with NASA to being you know at the highest level in the federal government you can be short of being a political appointee right i'm i'm proud i'm proud of that
0: rightfully so and i
1: and i thank you and i work for that but look at my dad now my dad was an orphan meaning that when he was a child he didn't have a mother or father his father he never knew what happened to his father we don't know if he abandoned the family, died early. We don't know. He's tried to find out. My father's deceased, by the way, 2006. He knew, he was aware that he had a mom, but apparently his mother had a severe illness, tuberculosis, and couldn't care for them. So my father became a ward of the state. He was This was in Pennsylvania. And so he went to orphanages until eventually a Catholic orphanage took my dad in. And so this is in the 30s, right? So my dad was born in 1922. So this was in the 20s and 30s. So this is pre-civil rights, pre... This is Jim Crow America, right? So there... It doesn't get much worse than that for black people. I don't care which part of the country you were in. Eventually, he had an aunt uh, who decided to take him in and rear him. And... My father, long story short, uh, I don't know where he got this from, but he decided he was going on a journey and he wanted something. And what he wanted eventually is that he wanted to go into the military, which he did. He wanted to be a Tuskegee Airman, and he tried and tried and tried. And he told me the countless stories about how they kept coming in with excuses not to let him in. And so eventually he didn't make it in. But he was a naval officer. And then he left the Navy, and then he went to graduate school, and then he went to law school. And he didn't want to go to any law school. He wanted to go to Yale Law School. Yale Law School is one of the best law schools in the country. And he, I remember him telling me the story of him being in Philadelphia at the black barbershops where he would tell the barbers, this is what you wanted, and they just fell out laughing. <laughs> This dude is crazy. Who does he think he is? You can't get into the Yale laws. That's where the white guys go to and all this stuff. My father wasn't having any of it. You know, he said, you know, I'm going to do it. And eventually he did. And he became like the second or the third black person to ever start at Yale. Um, and, and he graduated and became a practicing wow. lawyer. Eventually, my father was appointed to be United States Ambassador, President Ford, appointed him as U.S. ambassador to Republic of Niger in West Africa. And then Jimmy Carter, when he came in, reappointed him to the same position. And prior to that, he had high levels of State Department. So my point is, my dad went from being an orphan, a black orphan in Jim Crow America, (laughs) to being a United States ambassador. That is a distance that I could never Uh, Unless I decide to be rich like Bill Gates, I could never cover that because I wasn't born. I was born in 1957. You know, the Civil Rights Act was 64, so there was a lot of changes happening by then. And we were living in California, which was a little bit more advanced socioeconomically than some other parts of the country. I didn't have those issues. I didn't have to go to segregated schools. I didn't have to drink out of white fountains. I didn't have, you know, folks chasing me around just because I was black. You know, I I didn't have any of that that my dad had. And yet he went and covered that distance. And so I say that story to say that, yes, it is difficult and it shouldn't be that hard. You know, racism makes it that hard, but it shouldn't be that hard. But that's the world that we're in. And to deny that that's the world that we're in is, I think, foolish. Now, the world needs to change. The country needs to change. The institutions of systemic racism need to change. But if you wait around for that to change so that you can enjoy the fruits of a good country, you're going to be dead (laughs) before (laughs) that happens. So I say you have to start with where you are and what you have. And I think there's tools that are available and people who are willing to help you to get at that. And so manners, as I define it, is about how you show up in the world and how you approach your world and how you engage your world in a way that's going to take you on your journey to where you want to be. And that's why the book is titled Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't because it's not good enough to be smart, Kamani. It's not. I've worked at NASA for 35 years. I can tell you there's people whose careers did not work out very well. They were very smart. You got to be smart to work for NASA. But because of their poor manners, it didn't work out for them. So that's my message is that Yes, do well in school, get good grades, and, you know, I'm not arguing don't get good grades. I am arguing that you need to cultivate a skill of great manners, and that's why I wrote the book. So um, that's a long way of saying that um, I believe that no matter where you are in life and what your situation is, and Kamani, I can just tell, I don't know your story and the details of your story, but I know enough from what you've shared and what I've listened to that You know, your upbringing probably was different than mine, and by all accounts, the challenges that you faced, it's probably a miracle that you are where you are. But what I know and sense about you is that you're a person of possibility. You see the possibility of your life in a way that is open to say, I'm going to figure out how to grow in this. And if I need help to do it, I will. If I need to develop new skills, I will. And the old rules that kept me where I am don't apply to me anymore. And that's a decision that you have to make. And it's a decision that I think that you did make.
0: You know, first thing I wanted to say is that that's an amazing story that you told about your father to where he pretty much came from probably one of the worst possible situations you can be in, being an orphan and being in Jim Crow America, and then to eventually be uh, a Navy officer and then a Yale graduate from law school. It's just an amazing sco- amazing story, and that's extremely encouraging to hear. And then to kind of touch on the other thing that you mentioned about you know, the way that you move through life and the way that you kind of present yourself and, I guess, being a person of, of possibility, like you said, I can definitely uh, see what you're saying. And I I guess you can say that I would agree that that's kind of the way that I started to kind of move through life. And once I started to look at things from that perspective, that's when things started, I guess you could say making a started to make a change. And so to kind of talk about that a little bit. So before, whenever I didn't think things were possible for me, of course, obviously I wasn't going to get results. Life wasn't what I wanted it to be. But when even I guess despite what I thought like limitations were on my life or what I could do, even despite that, whenever I said, I might as well try, I have nothing to lose. I started yeah. to notice that a lot of those limitations that I thought were being placed on me either were non-existent or not nearly as, um, as limiting as I, as I thought that they would be. And then to kind of touch on something that you had mentioned much, much earlier in the interview, where you talked about people taking the time to come and help you. That was one yeah. of the things I was actually the most surprised about because being a kid that was, you know, ignorant of a lot of stuff, a lot of different social customs and things, not really knowing what to do in corporate environments, not really knowing how to assimilate when I got to, to college yeah. where pretty much everybody looked different for me as opposed to, yeah. to my hometown, which is like 45% black, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. having people around me that I definitely wouldn't ex- have expected see that need and seeing I guess what you said, that energy of, of possibility and seeing that I was making efforts, it was just surprising to me that so many people and not just black people, white people, other races yeah. were willing to help me through that process to get to where I am today. Cause it definitely wasn't just all me. I don't think anybody's just completely self-made. If it hadn't been for those people's contributions and the potential that they saw in me, I definitely wouldn't be here today. But it all started with, I guess that, I guess that energy of, of possibility, like you yeah. said.
1: Yeah, exactly. People like to be on winning teams. If I see somebody who is up to something and they're making efforts and, you know, they're they're open and a little bit humble, but, you know, they're trying, you know, I, I want to be helpful. If I'm around people that, you know, are narcissistic and arrogant and, you know, it's my way or the highway and I'm right and all that, I, I'm not, I don't find that very inviting. First of all, they're not. Asking me, is there, you know, anything that, you know, you can offer me that might be helpful? Um, But that's why when I talk about, you know, in in chapter 10, who's on your team, I, I invite people to really invite people into their lives who are willing to tell you what they see in a very truthful, authentic, and loving manner. Because sometimes just the little things that could make a difference, um, and I, I can't tell you how many times that's happened for me. And but you need people who, who that you've given permission to to be quite honest. It could be in how you speak. It could be in how you dress. It could be your mannerisms, right? Your behavior. Um, it could be your word choices. Um, it doesn't have to be obvious and overt. Um, I tell a story about, at the beginning of the book about how uh, when I was applying for a program to, that eventually led me into NASA, uh, it was uh, several stages when I was in graduate school of application to the college and then to the university and then to the federal government. And along this process... Uh, they were training us to get ready for the big interview that we were going to have with the Office of Personnel Management, which is the federal government's hiring arm, if you will. And part of the training was in preparing for interviews. And they put us through mock interviews, and that included – this is the first time this has happened for me. They they filmed our mock interviews. And after the interview was over, the coach said – Don, how do you think you did? And I said, well, I think that kind of knocked it out. You know, I felt pretty good. You know, I thought I had all the answers. I said, oh, okay. So they replayed the tape. And, come on, I was mortified with what I saw. Mortified. First of all, I might as well have been interviewing my notebook. Because 70% of the time, I never looked up at the person who was interviewing me. Then I noticed how many times... I repeated myself. I made a point, and then I say something. I say say it again, and then the uhs, and the you know. I I got uncomfortable with silence. Right, we get uncomfortable with silence, and we want to fill it in with filler. Right, right, and. All he had to do was show me that tape, and I was transformed. I said, wow. So I, I I like to tell people, and my wife gets mad when I use this analogy. So it's sort of like, you know, you see yourself all the time when you get in and out of the shower, but it's that one time someone shows you a picture of yourself in your swim trunks, and you're, like, freaked out because, like, oh, my God, I didn't know I looked like that. Or you hear yourself on audio, you didn't know what you sound like. You can't. You don't. You don't see the real you and how you show up to other people because you're just used to you being you. And so my invitation is ask people, give them permission to say, hey, bro, carte blanche, you tell it like it is how you see it on any front. Now, you don't have to accept it. But at least let it in and say, "Man, I didn't realize I did that." I, in my last job, I, I even even as smart as I thought I was, and as well trained as I thought I was, in the last job, I had a colleague that was part of my inner circle pull me aside and said, "You realize you inter- you you interrupted that woman three times in the meeting." And I said, uh, no, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and you didn't interrupt any men either. So I had inadvertently cut off the women in my team, and I hadn't done it with the men. I didn't even see that come on. I didn't even uh. notice I did that. Nor did I know what kind of impact that could have had. That you need people to tell you the truth as, as they see it. And it could be painful. It could it could be you, you might have to be willing to, to risk your relationship with your friend. These aren't, I'm not talking about the friends that tell you you're always right. That, oh, it's not you, on, it's them. You know, maybe it's a girlfriend issue. No, 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 bro, it's not you, it's her. She's horrible for you. you know. Well, it's you. It could be you. And you need someone to point out, you know, what it is so that, you have an opportunity to re-examine yourself and make a decision. Do I want to keep being that way or do I want to move on from that? And you might need help with that. But sometimes just the revelation of what somebody else sees is enough to, to have you make the changes that you want to make. Okay, Right.
0: I think that part right there that you just mentioned is so important because I feel like a lot of people that aren't getting the results that they want in life may not be taking the action to get these sorts of people around them that will actually hold them accountable. I feel like a lot of people, the reason why they end up being limited in their development and how far they get in life is just because they have so many yes men around them or people who will rather avoid confrontation and don't want to put their relationship at risk. And as a result, it's to their detriment where this person right. may think that they're fine in different areas or don't need to develop. And then whenever it gets down to it and don't get the results they want, Due to the fact that he never had to reflect to see if it's a, a me problem, they say it must be everybody else or this person's fault that I didn't get the job, whatever, whatever yeah. it is. And so I think that's extremely important. I'm glad that you brought that up because it's so valuable when you have people like that in your life that are willing to kind of take that role. Just from, you know, my experience, that was one of the things that my dad was really good about making sure that he was always telling me. What he saw like it was, he didn't care how it was going to make me feel. And so that's one thing I can say was to my benefit, especially uh, going into college and all that, that I kind of got into the mindset of being a realist, I guess you can say, and kind of that became like the expectation. So whenever I got around people that weren't mainstream shooters with me, it was just like a natural disposition I had to not be around them and go find other people that would with mentors and all that, too that were the same way and also and always told me what I needed to. And one thing about it, too, is that it also helped me to get really good at taking constructive feedback and and criticism. And so it it got to the point to where I got into the habit of being able to take whatever it is and understand that it wasn't something that was a personal attack on me. Right. And just going from there and trying to, I guess, make that improvement because I know that it's not them doing it to be negative. I know that they're doing it because at the end of the day, they actually care about the results that I'm getting.
1: That's right. That's why your podcast is called Improvement.
0: I mean, that's what it's all about, bro. <laughs> that's what it's all about, honey. Those little It's small all about improvements exactly. every day, right? And part and of the you know,
1: feedback. It, the people offering the feedback have a responsibility to check themselves to make sure that they're coming from a place of love and caring, right? That they care so much about you, they're willing to tell you things. Not just cavalierly that, I mean, you can tell the difference when someone's just not being as sincere. Um, and it's also important to, to share, you know, things that are not necessarily critical, but to affirm things that they see that you're doing well. And I, I do that a lot, you know, um, I, not long ago, I happened to, uh, my son is a trainer. He trains clients on the software platform that his company does and and i had an opportunity to watch him virtually and i I was like wow he could do that. that's really cool and i remember telling him i said brand i really appreciated how you handled a, a specific thing like something didn't go well technically but he didn't dwell on it he just he said he just moved on in a very artful way and you know and i i said i really admire that because Let's just face it. I mean, people don't like to hear excuses, even if they're completely valid. I mean, there may be reasons for things, but for goodness sakes, you know. Well, I didn't get this job because, you know, I was overqualified. And then there's a whole bunch of reasons, whatever it is. And I I don't find that useful. And I would go as far as saying the story that you tell yourself about whatever it is you didn't accomplish, or even if you did accomplish, is a story that you can change. Whether you believe it or not, just because it's labels, you know, and you have to be careful about the words we use, because even the words we use can have an impact, you know. And so it's like I heard somebody said today that how important it is each day to express gratitude for something. And the question came up, well, what if you aren't grateful for anything in the moment? says, well, just... Just say you're grateful for the opportunity to think about gratitude for a minute. I mean, so that in and of itself has power, right? So, you know, so I I invite people. uh, uh, This is what it means to take a look at things differently. This is what it means to have the video camera watching you and then going back and re-look at it. Is that it gives you a chance to re-examine how you were actually shown up in the world, which is a manners issue, your manner, your manner, how you speak, listen, behave, how you, the energy that you come from, all that's your manner, to examine that to see whether it's really working for you or not. And I think anybody can do that, regardless of where you are in socioeconomic status, right?
0: Right. And I guess to kind of jump in right here, one thing I wanted to touch on that you brought up that I think is very important that a lot of people don't pay attention to as far as like how impactful it can be is that thing that you mentioned about people giving you that positive feedback, telling you what you're doing well. That's something I definitely could have used more of because one yeah. thing I'll say is that whenever you get those, that, that affirmation of you know, how well you're doing in one aspect, it boosts self-esteem it boosts confidence. It gives you energy to keep on doing whatever it is you're doing. Because if all you're hearing is what you're doing wrong, if all you're hearing is just that constructive feedback without the good, It kind of gets to the point, or at least I'll say from my experience, it would get to the point to where I kind of feel like, what is the point exactly? And yes, I'm I'm getting all this negative feedback. I'm hearing about what I'm always doing wrong. This might just not be for me. And then the thing about it really was that I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. Once I actually gained some perspective and, you know, was getting some positivity in my ear. That's not starting to see. I'm actually in a much better spot than I thought. I can give you a quick example of that. So please do, yeah. Believe it or not, when I was a junior in high school, uh close to the end of that year, I wasn't even considering going to college after high school. So what I figured I was going to do is just enlist in the Air Force. And that was kind of because of what we just talked about. I was always hearing about the negatives and such and what I was doing wrong, how I might have been a loser in this aspect or not doing well or not doing enough or being lazy. And it kind of got to the point to where it distracted me from the positives, from what I was doing and what like the the potential was for me to be able to do in the future. So it got to the point to where I kind of shut down and was defeating myself. But then some different events happened during my senior year to where, you know, eventually getting good feedback from people and seeing how I compared, especially when like class rankings came out and all that, I figured, you know, why not go ahead and just uh, apply, you know, and everything. And then I guess the rest was history, but just getting that little bit of positivity and it wasn't even a lot just hearing, you know, one, two comments and just making a few comparisons that one day when we got our class rankings were things that led to me saying, you know, I might be better than I thought I was. And so I'm glad that you brought that up. But then the other thing you kind of touched on, I think we should definitely kind of dive into. Is the importance of manners and people's success, of course, because that's what your book is about. But yes, to be more specific. What are some of the ways that you see a lot of people in modern-day America limiting their own opportunities just from having that lack of manners, or I'll not, give not you, knowing how to well, handle themselves?
1: Yeah, so um, I'll share two examples that I write about in the book, um, and um, and I think you can see this as I paint the picture. So one example was a young man that I called Gabriel. I, I changed most of the names, uh, either because I didn't remember what their actual names were or I wanted to protect their identity because who they actually were weren't, weren't important to the story. Um, in my job as a, 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 the Associate Administrator for Education, I would often go around the country to events that NASA had. And NASA had an event in Southern California Uh, at an air show where they brought in a lot of students uh, to, it's like a science fair, so they had projects and things that they were doing. This is something that NASA did a lot. And I tell a story of, uh, and I've done this a lot of times, so there's there's sort of a typical rhythm that happens, you know, I go to a different booth and the kids are kind of shy, you know, because some big guys come in there. And, and, you I'll ask them some questions and they'll tell me what they're doing. And some of the kids are just, you know, really incredibly smart. And, and I pretend like I know what they're talking about. But I, I mean, i definitely like, wow, I don't know what this dude's talking about. This is pretty incredible. Um, and so I was at this one event and this one experience just really impacted me because as I was walking down the booths, I was getting ready to approach another booth and I saw these two young kids that I judge to be of Mexican heritage, I don't really know that's how they showed up to me. And, and the only reason I mention that is that NASA spends a lot of time and effort to inspire people of color to be part of NASA, because traditionally NASA wasn't that way, right? It was pretty much a non-people non—you uh, non, know people of color organization, right? It's gotten a lot better. So we put a lot of effort into that. So I saw these, and, I, and the thing that I noticed is that both of the kids were standing up waiting for me, and that none of the other kids had done that. In fact, most of the kids, when I went to their booth, none of them stood up. And um, so it caught my eye, and I, I went up there, and as soon as I got there, the first young man that I called Gabriel put his hand out and say and said you know you know welcome to my booth Mr. James I'm really excited to share with you about the project that Robert and I are working on he had his partner with him and and he was he looked me straight in the eye he he was respectful and you know he called me sir and he called me by my name now why is that important I had a name tag on but none of the other kids bothered to look at it to know what my name was and and I'm not saying that that's critically important. What I'm saying is, this kid was aware. This kid paid attention. This kid had presence. This kid had some humility. And when he proceeded to talk to me about what he was doing, he was amazing. He had an amazing command of what this particular project was, but he didn't drone on and on and on. He would talk for a while and he would stop and said, "Do you have any questions you'd like to ask me?" And so I'd ask him a couple of questions and says, "Well I'd like to share with you about something else." And then he'd hand it off to his teammate and after a while I said to this guy I said, "Dude, how old are you man?" And he goes, "Well, I'm 11. I'm like, "You're 11?" because in my mind I would have hired him on the spot. But we only could hire, you have to be 16 to be hired as an intern. I would have hired him on this spot. Why?
0: The 11-year-old.
1: Because, 11-year-old.
0: Yeah, no, made a better impression than the older kids. Totally.
1: He made a better impression than half of my colleagues at NASA. Because number one, this kid was willing, He he sought support, he was present, he wasn't fidgety. He had a sense of awareness. I could teach him all the technical skills he would need to know to do his job. But the hardest thing for me to teach anybody is manners. And this kid had great manners. In fact, after a while, I said, are your parents here? And he goes, yeah. And he pointed them out to me. They were standing in the back looking at him with pride. I said, excuse me a minute. And I went over to his parents and I looked at them in the eye and I said, Whatever you did to rear that kid, you have done a phenomenal job. You should be very proud of yourself. And they said, thank you very much. That's all they said. Contrast that with another story I tell in the book. I'm at an airport. My wife and I are getting ready to take a trip. We parked the car. We're walking to the terminal. On the ground, I see a pink neck, neck pillow, right? Like you put on your neck when you're flying on an airplane some it obviously fell off somebody's luggage they're going it's not it's too bad so i picked it up and i'm going to take it in trying to find out if they have a lost and found so i go up to the counter when i go into the terminal and i said is there a lost and found someplace you know i found this um in the uh on outside the ground and the, the lady behind the counter says, oh, well, there's an information booth right over there. Why don't you just take it to the person over there and, you know, they'll take care of it. I said, great. I walk up to the information booth. As I get closer, I notice there was a young man, I would say about 17, maybe 18. He had headphones on and he was looking at his smartphone. Never looked up. I get right up to him and i said excuse me uh, i was advised to bring this over here and and halfway through that he he didn't so you're imagine he was looking down at his phone he he didn't put his head up and look at me he raised his eyes looked at me and he took one of his airpods out as if to say like what did you say and he and i repeated what i said and then he said okay and he took the pillow, didn't say thank you or nothing like that. And my reaction was, this is a young man who missed an opportunity. I talk in the book, uh, one of my chapters is on interviewing, and I talk about how you are always interviewing. Whether or not you're in a formal interview or not, you need to act like you are always interviewed because you never know who you're talking to. And this young man missed his opportunity. Now, like my mother said, I don't know his story. I don't know his background and I could be forgiving about a lot of that, but had he shown any sense of presence like Gabriel did and, you know, thank you very much. And I really appreciate it. Or if he stood up and showed me a little bit of deference and respect, the fact that I walked over there, I mean, it wasn't like he was busy. He was looking at his games or whatever he was doing. Um, It could have been, because of the kind of person I happened to be, and it might have been different if it was somebody else, that, you know, depending on what he was up to in life, I could have been a resource for him. But he gave me zero reason to want to help him. Zero he could have said, you know, hey, where are you headed off to today? And I would have said, I'm going to Hawaii. Oh, what do you do? He said, oh, I, I work for the space agency. Oh, wow, that's really cool. And, you know, we could have had a nice little banter. And I have done this several times, Monty, where I have talked to young people and found out that they like space, and, but they didn't know what to do. And so I gave them my business card. I said, right, you know, I'll tell you how to get an internship or, you know, some give you some advice, you know. And some people take me up on that. But this kid gave me no reason to do it. So Gabriel, I would have hired in, in an instant. This young man, I don't even know what his name was. I, I, Unfortunately, he missed an opportunity. Those are two examples where manners made the difference. My brother is a commercial airline pilot. He's a captain. You would think that in aviation world, because everything is very strict and prescribed, that if once you're a pilot, you know you, you know how to fly planes, that manners doesn't particularly matter. My brother will beg the difference. He tells a story about how manners often in an interview is the tiebreaker. He tells a story about a man who walked into an interview. Uh, my brother happened to be a part of it. And the interviewer asked this man, well, why should we hire you? And the man sat back and crossed his arms and said, well, I'm a, you know, 10-year, whatever it is, marine aviator, and I've flown jets. You know, so that alone ought to make me qualified or whatever, because he just thought his you-know-what didn't sting. Uh, He did not get the job. I'm not surprised. His manners flunked him. He could fly. I'm. I, he could fly a plane, and you got to know how to fly the plane, right? No one's going to hire you to fly for an airline just because you got good manners. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. You have to know how to fly the plane. Fill in the blank on any job you're talking about, right? If you're an accountant, you better know how to do your numbers. They're not going to hire you because you got great manners, but you don't know how to, you know, manage an Excel spreadsheet, right? What I'm saying is that if it's if if you have to compete for a promotion, you have to compete for a job, you have to compete for the attention of your leadership, manners is the tiebreaker. It'll make a difference. Manners will take you where brains and money won't. That's the message.
0: You know, to kind of touch on this, to give you my perspective on it, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Like when you talked about the example with talking to Gabriel and how it made you want to give him, opportunities due to the fact that the way he carried himself resonated with you as opposed to other young man where, you know, just his demeanor and everything and the way he interacted with you made it to where there would have been no possibility for that. One of the things that I can say is that as I've developed over the years and developed into a person with a stronger presence, better personality and I guess better manners, it led to me meeting more people who were similar to me, I guess, or you could say attracting those people and keeping them around because... I align with them but also i'll say that it did lead to more opportunities because there would be times where i would be at let's say networking events or anything like that and even having a job lined up already just from having the people skills to where if you're if you're standing like by someone's table or or by the bar and like you have to be waiting in line uh you make some conversation, you know, ask them about yes. the ring that they're wearing or something like that. And yes. people have given me job offers. Yeah. Asked me what I was working on, connected yes. on LinkedIn, all types of other things. And so it's, I wouldn't say it's crazy how it works, but it makes, it makes sense how the people like you talk about that have those manners and those people skills tend to, uh, I guess, progress further in life as opposed to the yes, people who it never is, work on those it things. it
1: is crazy to think about. But you know what you're talking about? Just be curious about people authentically. And don't do it because you want something. Like, okay, I'm going to play my manners game so I can... That's not going to work. People are going to see you for a phony that you are if you do that. But just be naturally curious about somebody. You know, you meet some guy and, you know, maybe you don't know anything about him It's like, hey, you know, how did you get in this? And, you know, I like to ask people question you know how did you meet or how did you find out about this or you know what were some of the biggest challenges you have in life or what is the biggest lessons that you learned you know what can you tell me i mean just be curious about people not for any agenda but just because you want to get to know them the paradox is that when you're like that people are like wow this this guy